Oh no, your flatmate was leaving as I came in, so I just thought I'd come up. Okay, so this phone call, what's the big news? Well, you'll never guess, or believe it, because I don't, but I finally met someone. Oh, when? I know. Well, you know when I was in Glasgow a couple of months ago with Katie? Yes. Well, it was then that I met him. Okay, do I know him? Uh, I don't think so, but Jenny, he is perfect. I have never smiled the way I have since I met him, you know? You know when you get butterflies? Yeah. I have been having them constantly for the past few months, like swirling around, doing that. It's been amazing. He's amazing. And I just, I just can't believe he choose me, you know? Shush, look at yourself. You're gorgeous. He's lucky to have you. You. So best. what does he do? Is he a student? Does he have a job? Um, sort of. It's, um, kind of high profile. Ooh. I know. Well, it's kind of hard to describe what he does. Uh, it's... He's kind of, everything he touches seems to work out right, you know, like he'll be able to help or influence people just by being around him. So like a lawyer, politician? Um, not really. He says all these quizzical things, you know, like, I just, I don't understand them, but then he'll say one word later on and it'll just all fall into place, you know. He's really clever. But he never makes me feel stupid, because I'm not. And it's like, it's like, how can I describe it? He's just, he's brutally honest with me, and really, really truthful, but also totally accepting at the same time. You know? Well, honest is good, that's where I always go wrong. Yeah, and I'm sorry about that. It's just, this guy, I just feel like he never lied to me or let me down. Well, that's fine with those butterflies, but you can never really know a person. And I just don't want you to get hurt. No, look, you don't understand. He wouldn't. He couldn't. He's different. Look, I don't know how I can explain that I know that. I just do. Okay? He made me this promise that he'd never leave me, and I trust him. Totally. Cinderella. Sorry to burst your bubble, but that's quite a big promise so early It's on. not. Look, uh, I know. But it totally feels right. He's totally crazy about me, but not in a controlling way. And it's like he encourages me to go off and to be me and to do the things I enjoy. And it's like seeing the way he is makes me want to be a better woman. Look, I know, I know, it's stupid. I can't believe I just said that either. A better woman. But, you know, it's like, he's just so good to everyone he meets. It's like, without even articulating it, he's challenging me to change and to be different and to be kinder and nicer. It's just, he's really into justice. It's one of his main things. His main thing is justice. His! He sounds like some kind of crazy dugger. He's not, he's lovely, and I love him, Jen. I really love him. I'm I sorry. do. Okay? It's like... He's just, he's, he's lovely, and, and I just, there's so much more love I want to give him that I can't even tap into, or articulate, or even have the ability to express it, you know? It's like, I just, I can't get my head around it all. I just Fine, okay, he seems crazy about you. He is. You seem crazy about him. I am. I've noticed. Thanks. So, when can I meet this mysterious man, and does he have a brother? Uh, actually, does he have a brother? I'm not really sure. But anyway, you can meet him any time you like, Jen. I just, look, I know this is all crazy and it's really happening so fast, but you know me, okay? Everything I've told you is the truth, I promise. Okay, so what's his name? His name? 
Well, it's Jesus. Well, good to see you. Happy Valentine's Day. I hope you had a, a mailbox full of letters this morning. I got my wife a bag. Uh, it's bound to make the Hoover run smoother, so she's, uh, she's dead to you after that. Any Chinese here today? Kong Hei Fa Show? Happy New Year? Happy New Year, say Happy New Year, say Kong Hei Fa Show? Is that right? Is that, did I just make something up that sounds silly? <laughs> Today's an important day, it's Valentine's Day. We're also launching a church today, just, just like we do most weeks. Uh, we're launching Destiny Church Dunfermline, so that goes weekly as of this afternoon. So after going to the Leith service from across uh, in Fife, we're going to kick off and involved with that first service there at 1.30. So you can pray for that. If you're free, go, go across. Uh, it's in a little random school in Dunfermline, so you're bound to find it. But it's going to be great, so please pray for that. Dave Voon and Leslie are kicking that off, and they've been having monthly meetings up till now, and there's about 50 of, 50 of them there ready to get going. So uh, it's our passion to introduce as many people to Jesus as possible, and that's, that's why we start churches. Well, it's great to see you here, especially if you're visiting with us. A very warm welcome to you. Um, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and today we're in the last verse in the book of Ephesians. And we're going to be looking at the whole theme of love, as would be appropriate on Valentine's Day. And we're going to be looking at a divine love, God's kind of love, but also our response to him. Let's pray, and then we'll get to work in the Bible. God, thank you so much that you're with us today. Thank you, God, you, as, as we heard a moment ago in that skit, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Unlike anyone else, your love is constant, eternal, unmovable, and great. God, we love you in response. God, we ask you by your Holy Spirit, you'd come with power into this auditorium. Pray for everyone here. Pray for anyone, God, who is far from you today, that they would be drawn close to you. Pray for those who are sick, that experience the miracle of God in their bodies to heal them. Pray for those who are downcast. I pray you'd lift them up with your hope. God, I pray for your hand of blessing on everyone. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way. Guide us, guide me, as we look at these verses today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there was a couple in a train carriage heading down to London, and it was a sleeper train. And it was very embarrassing because they'd booked onto the sleeper train, they didn't know each other, and they found themselves, they were in the same cabin, just the two of them, and they didn't have a clue who the other person was. So this man and this lady. Anyway, after they got over the awkwardness of that, they managed to get to sleep. Uh, He was in the bottom bunk, she was in the top bunk. And in the middle of the night, she leant down and she said, excuse me, uh, I'm really cold up here. Would you mind passing me a blanket? And uh, the guy with a twinkle in his eye looked up and said, I've got a better idea. How about we pretend like we're married? And she giggled and said, well, that'd be good. And he said, great, get your own stupid blanket. (laughs) (laughs) It's tragic that relationships which start hot, cutting edge and passionate can over years erode to becoming something that, that are kind of limp and sad and bland. And that can happen with human relationships, but it can also happen tragically, even more tragically, with our relationship and ongoing encounter with God. Uh, we're going to be looking at the, the church at Ephesus. It ends in Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 24, it ends with a description 
of their love for God. And there are two words that I'm going to look at today. One from Ephesians, one from Revelation. Two words that describe this church's love or lack of for God. And these two words are hugely contrasting. So the first word is incorruptible. It says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 24, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. We'll look at that in a moment. But let me just say this. Love. How important is this thing, love? Well, it's massively important. Viktor Frankl, who was the author of the book, Man's Search for Meaning. The reason he wrote that book came from a lot of experiences he had in the Second World War concentration camps. He was a Jewish psychiatrist doing research on the meaning of life. When the Second World War came, he was arrested and taken with his family to Auschwitz. He lost everything. He was stripped of everything. His family, his belongings, absolutely everything. But he refused to lose his research. He'd spent years thinking about the meaning of life. And all his documents and all his research papers, he sewed into the hem of his coat. So as he went to Outvich, he wasn't they weren't going to get that. But then in a tragic moment in that, in that death camp, a gun was held at his head and he was told to remove his jacket. And reluctantly, he gave his jacket and his life's work. And in exchange, he inherited the worn out rags of an inmate who had been gassed. As he walked away, utterly dejected, thinking, is there any meaning to life? He put his hands in the pockets of his new jacket. And there, instead of his manuscripts on the meaning of life, there he found a little scrap of paper. And on that scrap of paper was the Jewish prayer, the Shema Yisrael from the Old Testament, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. That was a very defining moment in Viktor Frankl's life, a moment that inspired the writing of this great book that's been a world classic. He realized that he had given up his attempts at the meaning of life, and in exchange, in a little worn out, little tatty bit of paper, he was given, love God with everything within you. You know your meaning in life is love God. Jesus one day was approached by a, a highly intellectual and well thought of leader among the Jews, and he was asked, Jesus, tell me the greatest thing in life. And Jesus gave him this answer. Jesus in, in, Ma, in Mark 12, 28 to 31, what is the most foremost commandment of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your minds, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these, love. The shocking thing about this statement is when Jesus was asked, what's the purpose in life? The shocking thing is he did not include you in it once. He said, it's God and it's others. And you see, this is where the world has got it wrong. We've, we've thought that by pursuing our own things, by pursuing self, by pursuing pleasures, that's where we get enjoyment and fulfillment in life. But the reality is fulfillment comes from pursuing God and pursuing the well-being of others. He said, love God and love others. Didn't even mention you in it once and we're shocked. We've been asking the wrong questions. We've been asking what can I get out of life? But the question we should have been asking is, what can I give? And when you live to give for God and for others, you live a fulfilling life. So this question, is love important? Is absolutely vitally important. In fact, it's the purpose in life. 
In fact, according to Jesus, this commandment to love sums up all the other commandments. That by living to love, you're actually fulfilling all the Old Testament law. All those laws in the Old Testament are fulfilled in this one command, love. St. Augustine said, love God and do what you want. That's a good rule of thumb. Love God and do what you want. In other words, if you love God and love others, you're not going to have to worry about stealing or thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, if you love God and love others, that's, those things are not even going to be in your radar. Jesus said, love is the fulfillment of all the commands. So why love God? Well, there are many reasons. He's God. He's the creator. But here's one of the great reasons the Bible gives us. In Romans 5, 7 to 8, it says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. While we are still shaking our fists at him, while we are utterly disinterested in him, while we are walking our own way and ignoring him, in that moment, Christ died for us. It wasn't that we asked him to. It wasn't that we showed any inclination of being followers of his. We, the Bible says, that this is the Bible's worldview, that God created the world, and he created it and placed in this world the pinnacle of his creation, humankind. And right back at the beginning, we rebelled against God. We figured we didn't need him, that we would be our own God. We'd live for self, not for him. And as a result, suffering and wars and corruption and sin and sickness and natural disasters and human-made disasters are coming in this world because the pinnacle of God's creation rebelled against God. And the problem is right in here. Every human being is a sinner. And because of sin, we'll go to lost eternity without God. Sin will be judged. But instead of judging, God rather wanted to save us rather than judge us. So in 2,000 years ago, God entered into human flesh. Jesus was born as a man. And on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserve for our sins. God's wrath was diverted from us and placed on Jesus. So Jesus took the anger of God. Jesus took my hell so I could take his heaven. He took my sin so I could take his righteousness. And that divine exchange took place that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what's our response? Well, 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. He took the initiative. And we say, thank you. Because you did that for me, I'm going to love you with everything in me. I'm going to live for you from now on. It's the only reasonable response to God. Becoming religious is not a reasonable response to God and what he's done for you. But saying, I'm going to live for you now, Jesus. Because you died for me in the cross and you rose again, you're alive right now. and You're the Lord. Then I'm going to love you. And I'm going to live for you with everything within me. So that's why I love God. So what should this love for God be like? Well, this is where we come to the verse in Ephesians. It says in verse, Ephesians 6, 24, it says, Grace be to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Okay, that's the Greek words. I'll try and pronounce this. Apharthia. That's exactly how it's pronounced. Uh, and it means this. Unending existence, immortality, genuineness and sincerity it also means love which is sincere undiminishing 
So this, this word, this description of love isn't just a random kind of love. The Bible says it's an incorruptible love. Grace be to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love, an unending love, a sincere, genuine love, an incorruptible love, and an immortal love. It's talking about a love that has duration, but it also is talking about a love that has quality. It's genuine, it's sincere, and it lasts. John MacArthur, speaking about this, said this. Paul is really identifying the ones who will receive grace as the only ones who love, whose love is not temporary and thus untrue, but permanent and thus genuine. It's not just a whim, but it's a lifelong and passionate pursuit of God. Blakey, the commentator, said this, that the love that marks genuine Christians has not, is not a passing gleam like a morning clouds or an early dew, but an abiding emotion. <clears throat> Jesus himself speaking to the Pharisees who were religious and who didn't know, didn't know God's. Jesus said to them and said this in John 8, 42, if God were your father, you would love me. So what this is, this love for Christ is the, is the mark of authenticity in someone's life. It's nothing to do with whether you're religious. Nothing to do with how you appear to others on the outside. Are you deeply, authentically in love with Jesus? If you are, that's a mark of authenticity that God's your Father. Love for Jesus Christ. That sums up all the commands. It's your purpose in life. A love that is uncorruptible. Uh, during the troubles in 2008 in Orissa, many of you know we have an orphanage in Orissa, and many we have uh, many churches. We've got 45 churches in Orissa just now, and it's probably one of the worst places to have churches in the world. It's 98% Hindu. That in itself is not a problem, but there's many militant Hindus in that region, and as a result, especially in the lead up to the elections in 2008, there was intense troubles and persecutions coming on the churches. 22 of our churches lost their buildings in those troubles. It's heavy. None of our, our members lost their lives, thankfully, but there were dozens and dozens and dozens of believers in Orissa lost their lives. Many pastors were killed, martyred, burned to death. Horrible atrocities took place. But there was one of the stories from our orphanage in, in the fishing village in the edge of Orissa was that we've got about 30, 40 kids there who sleep there and some of them are educated in the orphanage, some are educated in the local primary school. And two of the kids were at the local primary school and they were there just to, just to learn. And, that, and it was during this kind of heightened tension time. Anyway, the teacher that was teaching them said, got all the kids and said, I want you all to bow down and worship this particular Hindu idol. It was a Hindu environment, so that was a perfectly acceptable thing for this teacher to do. But the two kids who go to our orphanage were followers of Jesus and said, we're not bowing down to the idol. This was a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, age of my kids. And said, we're not bowing down to the idol. And the teacher went ballistic at them and beat them. And the kids ran, beaten up, back to the orphanage, crying. But isn't that amazing? Love, incorruptible. Didn't quit. For them, Christianity wasn't just, all right, I'm in this orphanage. They happen to be Christians. That's cool. I'll be a Christian too. These are kids, even in the face of intensity and persecution and threats, these are kids who think, I'm going to follow Jesus. Love incorruptible. Not quitting. Some, many people have got a conditional love. It's like, well, God, if you answer my prayer, 
If you get me married, God, if you provide me that job, you, you heal me, God, then I'll follow you, then I'll love you. It's a, it's a conditional love. It's a consumer mentality love. But what God's looking for is an incorruptible love, unending, genuine, authentic. I remember the hours before my mum died. I remember that, that I, she wasn't able to speak much. And certainly in those last hours, her voice was down to a whisper and to the point where you couldn't hear her anymore. But honestly, the last words I was hearing mum saying, and she wasn't really connecting with us at all at this point, under her voice, I could, just under her breath, I could hear her saying, thank you, Jesus. Praise you, God. You're so great, Jesus. It's amazing. I hope, you know, when I'm at that moment, that's what's coming at my lips. And she'd be whispering this, thank you, Jesus. And then the next moment, where she was like a solo singer, now she's in a choir. And everything's bright and the pain is gone and Jesus is there and, and everyone's saying thank you, Jesus. It's love, incorruptible, eternal. And this is the mark of authenticity in a believer. It's an incorruptible love. That's the challenge. Love is a commitment with a beginning and no end. Now that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus around about 62 AD. It was 10 years before that that Paul planted the church. In 52 AD, Paul spent three years in this place called Ephesus, a little place in what is now modern-day Turkey. He spent three years there. He planted the church. He told people about Jesus. And en masse, thousands of people became, became this thing called the church. It was unheard of completely in this pagan society. There was a huge temple to the goddess Diana where there was 100 shrine prostitutes. And there was lots of occult work going on. And there was a lot of persecution from the Jews and the Romans. And in the middle of that, a church is birthed with thousands of people in attendance. And Paul spends three years there and makes an impact. Ten years later, this is a ten-year-old church. Paul writes the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus that he planted ten years before. Ten years has passed. And Paul starts in the book of Ephesians and he says in Ephesians 1.15, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. So here's a church 10 years old. They're hot. They're in love. They're passionate. They've got this love incorruptible. They're going for it. This is, when Paul writes Ephesians, they're on the ball. They're cutting edge. They've never been hotter. In fact, in the, in the book of Ephesians, unlike many of other Paul's books, there's no corrections he makes. He doesn't correct them. Many, like church at Corinth, it's just like, you're rubbish at this, you're rubbish at this, you're rubbish at this. That's the, uh, the end. That's Corinthians. But Ephesians, it's like, God is great. This is fantastic. Believe this, guys. This is awesome. There's no problems in the church at Ephesus. Paul's writing 10 years on. The church is hot. It's on fire. It's doing great. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. They're a church in love, incorruptible love. We're 10 years on as a church. We're, we're 11 years on as a church. We're grateful to God. We've grown We've come from nothing to somewhere. We're dreaming of a future. We're in love with God. We're excited. We're grateful to God for all that he's done. We're dreaming of a bright future. We're longing to impact our city. We're longing to make him honorable and awesome in, in the eyes of our people, in the people in this city. That's our long, that's our dream. We're hot. But you know, the challenge is, 34 years later, the book of Revelation was written. Now to a 44-year-old church in Ephesus. And the tragedy is, and this is where the second descriptive word comes in, 
is the description of their love here is their love has changed. It's gone from being an incorruptible love to being a love that it lost its cutting edge. And Jesus, in the book of Revelation, addresses the church in 96 AD. And this, at this point, is a 40-year-old church. And they've lost something. Okay, it says in Ephesians, sorry, Revelation chapter 2. And this is, this is the next descriptive word that's used. It's that they've abandoned their love. It starts off with incorruptible love. And it goes on to say, they've abandoned their love. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hands, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, and but have tested those who call themselves to be apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and are bearing up for his name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Some translations say, remember the heights that you've fallen from. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this in your favor. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. It's a horrendous cartoon network on Sky. It's detestable, which I also hate, Jesus said. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So listen to what it says. It says, the one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the, one, the, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. If you go back a chapter in Revelation, Revelation chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, it, it tells us what the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands are. It says the seven stars are the angels of those churches. Some commentators think that, well, he's talking to the pastors of the churches. Well, it says angels, so we don't know. But then it says, and the lampstands are the churches. So here's the picture The lampstands represent these churches and Jesus is walking among the churches. Do you know that Jesus still does that? He ends that verse by saying, I know your works. Jesus today is walking around among the churches in Edinburgh. And he would say, I'm intimately acquainted with your ways. I know the soul of the churches. I know where it's at. My finger's on the pulse. I know where it's at. I know what your true motives are. I know what you're doing and what you're not doing. And probably like the churches in Revelation, he's chuffed with some things. He's a bit upset by other things. He's moving among the churches. That's the picture. And he knows. Do you know that Jesus Christ, who is alive, is completely familiar with this whole church? Do you know that? He's here right now. He is amongst us. That's the only reason we have any expectation that your life can completely be changed today. It's the only reason we have any expectation that you could be miraculously healed today. Because he's alive. He's here. He moves among the churches. He says in verse 28, sorry, it says in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. You cannot bear those who are evil, and you've tested those who call themselves to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I know you've endured patiently and bearing up for my namesake and have not grown weary. 
what we find here is what I believe is the, the elders, the leaders in this church took heed to the warning that Paul gave them 36 years before. After Paul had planted that church, he went and talked to that church and said, he said this to them in Acts 20, verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and to all the flock. I know that when I leave, savage wolves will come among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise who will distort the truth and draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. So Paul says to the leaders at the church in Ephesus, after he planted the church, listen, there's going to become some nutters who will claim to have ministries and they'll do stuff and they'll be weird and they'll come up with crazy ideas and they'll lead people astray. Watch out. So the leaders after that, they're all paranoid. They're watching for them. As soon as someone kind of... They decks them. So they don't have a chance. So any nutter appears, he takes them out. The snipers watching the auditorium every Sunday. Nutter. And so they were hot on this. They were completely hot on this. And they were nailing the issues that were emerging. Jesus said, you've done well. You've, 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 you've recognized false apostles. Now, let me just also say here, some people believe there was only the 12 apostles plus Paul. Well, it wouldn't, he wouldn't take time to say, hey, well done, you've recognized the false apostles. Because if Ralph the apostle walked in, all you'd do is you'd get your list of the apostles' names. Matthew, John, Peter. Ralph isn't on the list. You're a false apostle. Right? I don't, think was, I don't think there was just the 12 plus Paul. I think in the early church, not just from this verse, but from many other verses and many references to Barnabas and others being apostles. There were hundreds of apostles circulating in the early churches, just as there are today, pioneering great church movements around our world. But in amongst that, like any ministry, you get folks who just want a title and they claim to be apostles because they figured that will give us some weight in the churches. And, Paul, and here Jesus is saying, well done, you've reckon, recognized people who were claiming false claims about their ministry and you kicked them out. So they were on the ball. They, these were people who were believers and he, he, Jesus says to them, you have not grown weary you know, why would he say that? Well, in those days, it was tough to be a believer. As I said, in, in, in Ephesus, it was, a, it was a center of pagan worship. It was very much like Edinburgh in terms of its spirituality and occult and witchcraft and stuff going on. It was a center of uh, paganism. And there was this huge temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a place where there was literally a hundred shrine prostitutes. And sexual immorality was a free part of their worship and it was horrendous and it undermined families and it ruined things. And that was what was going on in the church here. Sorry, not in the church, in the city. And the, the pagans were persecuting the church. We saw that in Acts when Paul was leading the church there and then he, literally a riot was caused by some of the pagan worshippers and they tried to kill Paul. Now that was the pagans. And then on this side, they had the Romans and the Romans were not just interested in honoring the Caesar, but many Caesars claimed to be deities and they, and they tried to force Christians to worship the Caesars. And the Christians obviously refused, so Christians were being martyred. You know, it wasn't easy to be a Christian in these days. And in the church in Ephesus, there were many people persecuted. Some had been martyred. Certainly in the surrounding areas, they'd have heard of many Christians being martyred. And then not only that, there was the Jewish nutcases in the same city who were zealously against Christians. So on every front, it was really tough to be a Christian. Even though there were thousands of new believers in this city, in this growing church, it was really tough being a Christian. And Jesus writes, in, uh, writes to them in Revelation and says, well done, you haven't got weary. You stuck it through. You haven't quit. 
even though it's tough, you kept going. Well done. <clears throat> From an external perspective, this church was doing the stuff. They were taking the boxes theologically. They were dealing with heresy. And they weren't quitting even in the face of intense pressure. But God sees not just the externals that we see. Because we would have been impressed. God saw that they lost something in their attitudes that they had at the beginning. They'd become strong on one hand, but they'd become weak in the other. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Jesus, who was moving among the churches, saw they'd lost something in their attitude. And this is what he says in verse 4. But this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, others wouldn't see that they'd lost their first love. But God did. In fact, they might not have even seen it themselves. And this is the scary thing. You can lose your first love and not even know you've lost it. It's not like one moment you decided, I'm no longer going to love God. It's not how it happens, folks. It's really how it happens. Usually it's a continual erosion of stuff, values you've held to, things you've believed in. And while you've become strong in one hand, you've become weak in another. This church had a great beginning. It was birthed in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you go back in Acts 19.6, you find that Paul turned up at the church at Ephesus. But before there was a church there, he found 12 people. He told them about Jesus. He prayed for them and the Holy Spirit came on them. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they started speaking in tongues. Wow, what a dynamic start. That was the beginnings of the church. It was birthed in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was birthed in great teaching and missionary zeal. It says in Acts 19, 9 to 10, that Paul, he took some of the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of some di dinosaur, Tyrannius. And he went on, for, this went on for two years. This is like a Bible college type thing. He was training the, the disciples and he was training them, teaching them for two years. And listen, what was, what was the result? So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's amazing. So what was going on? There was phenomenal teaching. I mean, who would have liked to have heard Bible teaching from Paul? That would have been good. Wow. I'd have, I would have enrolled for that course. Two years listening to Paul with passion in the face of intense persecution and threats from the pagans and from the Jews. He kept going teaching amazing things because he had seen Jesus. He had been a, a God-hater. Now he was a God-fearer and he was passionately telling everyone he could about Jesus. And this was amazing teaching sessions, two years of teaching. And the impact of that teaching was that the whole of the surrounding regions were impacted by the gospel. See, the people were getting the truths. They would say, I'm going to go tell someone about it. And they would go into the surrounding regions and start churches and share their faith. And that's what was going on in this church. They were birthed with teaching and great missionary zeal. They were also birthed with the miraculous. It says in Acts 19, 11 and 12, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So even handkerchiefs and aprons that were touched him were taken to the sick and the illnesses were cured and evil spirits left him. I love that phrase, extraordinary miracles. You think, well, is a miracle not extraordinary without the word extraordinary added to it? I mean, these must have been extra, extraordinary miracles. Kind of a miracle is kind of wow as it is. But these were extraordinary miracles. Blind eyes were being opened. Cripples were walking. Deaf ears being opened. Deads were being raised. Demons were being cast out, people. 
It was a life-changing moment for thousands of people in Ephesus. That's what was going on. And you imagine the zeal that that would have created. You imagine the inertia at the beginning of that church, the passion. Outstanding. We've seen that thing with Hankies happening. Uh, Jenny or Kitty, are you here today? Kitty or Jenny? No. Maybe come to a later service. They, uh, their dad is a doctor up in Shetland. And he had a heart condition uh, for 10 years. He had a pacemaker put in place because his heart wasn't performing. And every six months he would go and see a technician and they would monitor how his heart was doing. And the amazing thing about the technicians is they can literally monitor day by day exactly how the heart's performing. And the heart was performing roughly about 70% of, of its strength and the pacemaker was making up the extra 30%. And this was his condition for 10 years. Anyway, about a year and a half ago, everything went wrong and he was rushed into intensive care. He's flown down to Aberdeen and it was an emergency situation. So, and that night I was with his daughters at a home group across town in Oxgangs. And so we, they told us about his, their dad. And his, so we all just prayed. I got hanky, hadn't used it. Uh, we prayed over the hanky in that home group. We all prayed and laid hands on his hanky. And we said, God, I pray you'd heal Dr. Malcolm. We put it in the post. And he, he's a believer. He loves God. He got his handkerchief. What to do with this? So, no, he, he put it in his head. Uh, and he sat in the presence of God for 15 minutes and said, God's trust you to heal me. And that was that. Anyway, he, he went back to the technicians. And as I say, they can monitor from a day-by-day basis the condition of his heart. And bear in mind, things had gone horrendously worse. After 10 years already being bad, it had taken a dive. Anyway, from the moment the handkerchief came, from that moment, from that day, his heart has been performing at 100%. Outstanding. He, being a doctor, he didn't want to claim a miracle quick. Because doctors, they're just thoughtful and that's right. And you don't want to go claiming miracles when it's just been a, a little change for a moment. Anyway, so he didn't write to us and tell us this for about a year and a half because he kept going to the technicians to double check and to double check and to monitor to double check. And then he wrote to his, uh, the, if you want to read his letter, he, it's, it's on our website. He wrote to his, uh, the, the important person in Aberdeen, whatever that person is. And, and they said, uh, we don't understand why this has happened. <clears throat> and it's from the moment the hanky came, he was completely healed. God does extraordinary miracles. And this church was birthed in the extraordinary miracles. Also, this church was birthed in mass repentance. Listen to this, Acts 19, 18 to 19. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And they calculated the value of the scrolls. The total came from 50,000 drachmas. Now you all go gasp because 50,000 anything is great, you think. But 50,000 drachmas, a drachma is a day's wage. So 50,000 days wages. You do your sums. That's the value of these books were millions of pounds. So this wasn't like a few witches with kind of dodgy hats and a broomstick coming and saying, I'm no longer going to be witches and they burn the broomsticks. This was most likely hundreds of people if not thousands of people saying, we're no longer going to be involved with occult. We're going to be followers of Jesus. Wow. I mean, there's such authenticity, such incorruptible love there. There's such commitment and passion. And we see that they were, they were birthed in the middle of persecution. They were, bir- they were birthed and they had great leaders. Their first leader was Apollos, who was a great Bible teacher. Then Paul came along and he started the church. After Paul was Timothy. 
Paul's traveling companion, he became the local pastor in the church at Ephesus. After Timothy was John the Apostle. What was John known for? He was known for... He was known for nothing. That's right, isn't it? That's right. John was known for nothing. You bunch of dweebs. Do you not know the Bible? Come on. What was John known for? He was known for... Okay, today is Valentine's Day. John was known for sending cards. No, go on, what, what was he known for? He was known for... You're still not all getting it. Come on. What was he known for? Love. Thank you. Three at the front actually knew the answer. The rest of you just copied. He was called the Apostle of Love. Now, if you're going to have an apostle leading your church, the apostle John would have been a great apostle. You read 1 John. Look at, look at his passion for God's people expressing true love. Look at his depth of revelation of what love was all about. So here's a church that's had every opportunity to get it right. Birthed in the Holy Spirit. Birthed in deep repentance. Birthed with great miracles. Birthed in the middle of, you know, kind of intense persecution. Having great leaders one after the other. In fact, most likely in the early days, Mary, Jesus' mother, would have lived there. Because when Jesus was dying on the cross in John 19, 26, 27, on the cross... Jesus turns to John, the disciple he loved, and says, Behold your mother. And she turns to Jesus and says, Behold your son. And from that day forward, John took responsibility for Jesus' mum and looked after her. So most likely, elderly Mary would have lived in the church at Ephesus. Now, if you've got every reason to have an incorruptible love, you've got it right there. You've got all the heroes in your church. You've seen all the miracles. God's done great things. And yet, 44 years on, after the conception, here they were. They were doctrinally sounds, but they'd lost it. They'd abandoned their first love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, If I speak in the tongue of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and have faith so as to move mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but don't have love, I gain nothing. This church progressed in secondary areas, but they did not, they regressed in primary areas. They had a passion for God at the beginning, but they ended up with a passion for orthodoxy and theological accuracy. Their passion changed and they didn't even see it happening. Charles H. Spurgeon, speaking of this, said this, when love, when love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse, a powerless formalism. Adhesion to truth sours into bigotry. And we've seen that. We see people who, they believe in truth, but they haven't got much love. They're kind of hardline folks. And you just don't want to be around them. They judge everyone. That adhesion to truth sours into bigotry when the sweetness and the light of love to Jesus depart. They're sounds asleep. You see, it's like the couple who fall in love. They have kids. The love and the passion, the honeymoon, excitement all at the beginning. They bring kids into the world, and before they realize it, the kids consume all their time and focus and attention. Because kids do that. Kids demand their attention. Kids demand their focus and their love. And they raise those kids, and they, without realizing it, they don't make it. They never made a choice to neglect each other, but without realizing it, they've neglected each other. 
And now the kids are 20, they leave home. And they look across the room and they think, who are you? That's why I said a couple of weeks ago when we taught on parenting, that the best thing a dad can do for his kids is to love their mum. Excuse me. <laughs> that the, the love that brought those kids into the world at the beginning is the love that's going to enable them to thrive in this world if that love continues as... For once it wasn't the geeks at the back, it was I. <laughs> Sorry for calling you geeks. <laughs> but you are. <clears throat> the kids are brought up in this loving environment where they get all the love and the parents neglect each other. And that's ultimately not what the kids need. Um, how do people lose this love? Well, it says here, you've abandoned your first love. You know what? Some of you guys, young guys, used to be all excited about Jesus, but now you're all excited about the Bible. And you think, well, no, that's inseparable. Jesus and the Bible are one. You, you can't, but you have separated out. That's the problem. You're excited about truth. You're passionate about doctrine. But you no longer get a tear in your eye when you think about Jesus. There's a problem. Don't lose your zeal for the one while you gain the zeal for the other. Both are good. <clears throat> Some of you have got involved with serving. You're carrying weight in the church here. You're doing tons of stuff for Jesus. And you got into that because you were excited about Jesus. Thomas Akempis said this, whoever loves much does much. And that's normal. You get excited about Jesus. You do stuff for him. And you want to serve. You give your time to the church. You give your money to the church. You go and tell your friends about Jesus. Get involved in the city, help out in the communities. <clears throat> but you're years on and you've really, you've forgotten Jesus. And now you're starting to begrudge, oh, another rota. And you're starting to begrudge others around you. What? These are telltale sign, folks. You've lost your soft heart. Your passion for Jesus is disappearing. Some of you are, you know, you're, you're so absorbed with the social aspects of church. You've come along. You come along and you're blown away by Jesus when you first come. You think, God, you're amazing. I want to follow you. But then you start really getting tons of friends, and that's good. And you're all here, and you, you, the reason you come to church now is you're excited about seeing your buddies. And you kind of go through the motions, oh, let's sing those songs, I know these songs. And then you hear the preacher, come on, hurry up. Because the preacher does go on for a while at this church. And then you say, right, and you just hang around and socialize at the end, and that's great. But you've forgotten the reason you came in the first place. And it should be a social event at church. But you've forgotten the biggie. Paul says, so Jesus says in Revelation, you have abandoned the love you had at first. The word abandons is the Greek word athemai, which means to send forth, to forsake, to lay aside, to leave, to omit, to put away, or to send away. Notice the description isn't saying that you lost it by accident. There's a difference between lost and left. You've left your first love. You're not a, a victim. You're a volunteer. Whether you realize it or not, you've moved to a place with the Lord. And you haven't, it's not that you've made a rebellious choice in one moment. It's been lots of little mini decisions of motive and change of heart misfocus and before you realize it by choice your choice my choice we've ended up in a place where we're no longer in love with jesus there are many reasons the bible says this can happen sometimes people lose the, lose the love for jesus because of a tough life and jesus said in matthew 24 12 
Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. I'm having a tough time. Stuff's happening in my life. There's sickness. There's people coming against me. I've got a sack. My, my, my partner left me. Stuff happens. And yet, you've lost your first love. And I want to say, you're not a victim. You're a volunteer. The best thing you can do in the tough times is hold on to Jesus. Not abandon him. Another reason you can lose your first love is an easy life. A tough life is one reason. An easy life is another reason. It says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2 and 4. This is a description of the last days. It says there will be terrible times in the last days. You know, the King James Version says there will be perilous times in the last days. And you think, well, what's he going to describe next? You think it's going to be horrendous. It's going to be horrible. What's the description? And this is what he says. He said, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Doesn't sound that horrendous. It actually sounds like Edinburgh. <laughs> it doesn't sound ugly. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not killing people and people are dying all over the place. And it doesn't say that. It says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of the money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. See, our perspective of what we think are terrible times is different to what God's perspective is. And in a Western consumeristic mentality society, nothing wrong with having things. God doesn't mind you having things. But the problem is things have you. And they've gripped your heart. And you're pursuing the wrong things. And you've, without realizing it, you've become a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. We had a guy in our church way back at the beginning. Great guy. I love the guy to bits. I've lost touch with him completely. But he moved away from our church and he always struggled with temptations and stuff going on. I just heard recently, he's, he runs an internet company selling sex toys. And it's not a Christian internet company, just in case you're wondering. He's completely just pursued pleasures and stuff in life, thinking that that's where his fulfillment's going to come from. But it started with hundreds of little compromises, and he ended up down that route. You see, also this happens in religious circles as well. We become consumeristic in our Christianity. So Christianity all becomes about get saved when you come to Jesus. You can have a new life. You can have a happy life. You can have an eternal life. Come to Jesus so he can give you a new life. Actually, a bigger reason to come to Jesus is because he's Lord. And your only fulfillment is going to find, be found in loving him. And there's a subtle distinction there. Because when you come to Jesus, you do get a new life. But that's not the primary agenda. The primary agenda is God's. And our, our Christianity has become consumeristic to fit in with our culture. But it's about God, not about us. Christianity is not human-focused and centered around us. Although God loves us to bits... And God teaches us in the Bible to live great lives. But the primary agenda is God's. You know, a religious life can cause you to lose your first love. I think Billy Graham, and this was the problem in Ephesus. Billy Graham said that most people in America have had just enough religion to keep them from getting the real thing. They have just enough to inoculate, inoculate them against God. <laughs> I think that's so true. That's, that's how it can happen. You just get... You get certain exposures to religiousness and you think, I've got it now. But you haven't gone the whole way and got Jesus and he's not the primary agenda in your life. And if he died on the cross and rose again and if he's Lord, he deserves to be number one. Matthew, 20, Matthew 7, 22 to 23, it says this. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
Wow. So these are people who are religious to an extreme. They're seeing miracles. And yet they didn't have a relationship with the Lord. And when there's no relationship with God, then there's nothing left. Charles Spurgeon said this, a church has no reason for being a church when she has no love within her heart. Or when she hurt, that love grows cold. Lose love, lose all. And Jesus goes on in, in Revelation. He says, remember therefore where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yeah, I have this. You have this. That you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, to the conquers. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus says, repent. Remember, repent, and do three things. Remember, repent, and do. Remember where you've come from. So if you're in a situation where you've lost your first love, go back. What was it like at the beginning? What was it like when God first gripped my heart? Oh God, I remember those days. I remember the things you showed me in the Bible. I remember when I first realized you did that for me in the cross. Remember. Bring it back to your memory. Then repent. And this is the Greek words, uh, minito, which means to change the minds or purpose, to change one's decision. It's about thinking, you know what, I remember how it used to be. I'm not going to live in the way I am now. I'm going to get back to the way it was. I'm going to get back to the simplicity, the passion, the intensity of those beginning stages in my faith. I'm going to get back to that. And then it says, do. Do the works you did at first. You know, this is good advice for a stale marriage. A marriage that's lost its cutting edge. What are the things you used to do that made it exciting? Now, don't tell us them all. But how about some of them? Like walking from along the beach, going for a chippy, looking out on the sea, going to that restaurant you love, going to that part of the countryside that you used to date at. You know, doing the things you used to do often rejuvenate the things that were there in the first place. Well, go back to doing the things you did in the early stages of your faith in God's. Get them going again. Just that raw passion for Jesus. That genuine excitement when you turn to the Bible rather than it being a religious ritual. Having awesome passion when you come to pray rather than getting into a rigmarole of going through the, the motions. And you notice that the, the first two things it says, remember and repent, are inward activities. The, set, the third thing is do. That's an outward activity. And this is your key. Because what you're doing is you're just doing without doing the in bit. You're doing the out bit without doing the in bit. You're just doing, doing, doing. You've got up, caught up in Christianity. You're doing Christianity. You're serving at church. You're doing stuff. You're living this life. You're doing, doing, doing. But the problem is you're not first remembering and repenting. Here's the advice. Before you just go off and start praying in tongues and like on autopilot, remember and repent. This is all about you. If I pray in the tongue of men or of angels, don't have love, it's nothing. So God, I love you. Bonjour. And all your, off you go. Or if I prophesy and don't have love, wait a minute, God, you're amazing. Then you go. Just remember and repent. And then do. I'm on the rotor today. Right on. Hey, this is for you, God. All right, let's go for the rotor. Get the perspective. Get the in bit going first. Then do the out bit. Jesus comes to a place in a place called Bethany. 
And it says in Luke 10, as Jesus and his disciple continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village. There was a woman named Martha and welcomed her into, him into her house. And her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted with the big dinner she was preparing. And she came to Jesus and said, Lord, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem unfair uh, to you that my sister sits here while I do all the work. Tell her to come, uh, t- tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details. And yet there's only one thing. Say one thing. One thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, all you proactive folks are really angry at Mary now. You think, I know her. She bugs me. She's so spiritual, she does nothing. Well, let me dispel that myth. There's many other places in the Gospels where Mary is referred to as the hard-working servant person, doing tons of stuff, doing, doing, doing. But notice she did the inside bit first before she got on to do the outside bit. And this is where it's all at. Connect with God. Have that authenticity in your relationship with God. And out from that, then do. I'm not saying stop. I'm saying keep doing the good stuff. I'm just saying remember what it's all about before you do it. And then Jesus ends and says in verse 5, I will come to you and if you don't deal with this, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If churches don't change in line with him, then their light goes out. And some churches don't even know the light's gone out. And they meet next week as usual. And yet the light's gone out. He's removed the lampstands. They're no longer shining in the community. And yet they, they didn't notice. They still have their services. Nothing changed. It's incredible. It's become dead. And they didn't even know it. And Jesus said, if you do deal with this, then the lampstand will continue. There's a little kid one day after church, he came home and got down on his knees that evening and prayed, dear God, had a good time at church today. I wish you'd been there. It was great. And so often, you know, the church continues, but God's not involved anymore. And this is is the warning. And the church at Ephesus apparently took on the challenge. So this is the last we hear in the Bible of the church at Ephesus. But church history tells us that the church at Ephesus for four centuries was a vital, active, passionate church. So just as years before when Paul had said, listen, there's going to be some nutters arising among you. Keep your eye out. And they said, right, we're going to take note. So too this 40-year-old church when Jesus says, you've lost your first love, deal with it. I think they changed Because four centuries later, the church at Ephesus is still a burning light. In fact, the third third general council of the whole church was held there in AD AD 431. It was a passionate, Bible-based, spirit-filled, loving people, loving gods, outward-looking church that was impacting and shining in in a city. Our dream is to see a church that doesn't just last a generation. But our dream, do you know what I'd love to see a church begin we're 10 years old now but I would love to continue for centuries until Christ returns it might not be centuries it might be this generation that Jesus returns in but I would love I I was praying this last night and this morning God I pray let's be here as a church keeping our first love 
for the generations until you return. Not missing a beat. That's our passion. You see, when an airplane is traveling to a destination, it gets to the destination. But did you know that 80 to 90% of its flight time is actually off track? If you were to aim it exactly at its destination, it's actually off most of the time. So how does it make it? It makes it eventually to the destination because it's constantly readjusting. Oh, oh, and then they get there. So God comes and he readjusts us. He says, you're missing it. Look, you've got all caught up in stuff and you've missed the big thing, me. It's all about Jesus Christ. So we're going to pray. And we're going to dedicate ourselves afresh to God. And for those who have never dedicated themselves to God, I'm going to give you the opportunity to make the decision to give your whole life to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize this, uh, this church that was on a journey. The book of Ephesians is just one of the most amazing books in the Bible. Full of amazing truths, packed with promise, packed with things that will just motivate us to live great lives. And God, we see this 10-year-old, zealous, awesome, growing church in love with you. But God, we see the warning, God, that it became something it should never have become. It got it right in so many areas, but it lost it in the most important areas. Jesus, thank you so much that your challenge, your rebuke in Revelation wasn't because you didn't love them. But it was because you loved them, you rebuked them. It's because you loved them, you corrected them. And God, our prayer and our deepest desire is that we would make the adjustments when necessary. God, for anyone here today, God, who has they've gone off track and they haven't even noticed it. And here they are in a place where they're miles from where they should have been and they know it. God, I pray today they will just wake up and recognize. Just while we're in God's presence just now, why don't you just take a moment just to respond to God. If that's you and you know, you know, maybe you started out with a red hot passion for Jesus. But wherever you're at now, whether it be tough times, whether it just be religiousness, or whether it even be the materialistic world you're living in, pleasures, you're miles off now. Why don't you just take a moment right now just to readjust, to remember, to repent, and then to do. stop doing just do it with a different motive maybe some of you here today maybe you've never given your life to Jesus one day we'll all stand before him the Bible says he will return he is the Lord of Lords and he's the King of Kings he died for you because he loved you so much he didn't want you to die in your own sins so he died on your behalf please accept this the third day he rose again He's alive now. And he longs to be your Lord. 
So that's you and you're saying, Peter, I need a saviour. I need forgiven. I need my life to be his. I need to know that I'm eternally safe. Then I invite you just to pray a prayer with me just now. Just quietly under your breath, repeat this after me. Pray, dear Lord God, I want to thank you for your immense love for me. Thank you because you love me, you are willing to die on the cross. Rise again in the third day. I acknowledge that I am a sinner and I need saved. Please forgive me. Thank you. I believe you're alive right now. Today, Jesus, I make you the Lord of my life. I give you first place. I will follow you from this day forward with all my heart. Thanks for hearing my prayer, for accepting me today as your child. closed anyone here prayed that prayer you have just done the biggest and best thing you ever do in your whole life by committing your life to God if you prayed that I'd love to pray for you I'd love to ask God to bless you as you embark on this new life with him in order to know who I'm praying for if you're here and you prayed that prayer can you start identify yourself really quickly just by raising your hand high then putting it down again is there anyone like that today Thank you. Anyone else? Thanks, man. Anyone else? Just raise your hand clearly so I can see it. Dear God, I pray so much for these precious individuals who today have said yes to you. I want to say thank you that you heard their prayer and you accept them today as your child. God, I pray they will know your love. I pray they will know your power working in their lives. I pray this will be the beginning of a new life for them. In Jesus' name.